want to ask something about pronunciation. So I thought that the hard line over an A was may, means that A is pronounced like an A, like mehe ke siapa. And if it doesn't have the hard line, it's ma ah. Am I, am I incorrect? Is it the same in all languages? I don't know. Because it's maha. It is Isn't maha. it, Donna? Uh, yes, it's maha kashyapa. That little um, accent over the S means it's pronounced S-H. Uh, and it, I think it's just the, in, in Sanskrit, those long A's just mean they're held longer. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking, Nelda. That's that's a good question. Yeah, I had to uh, stop and look at the name and try to sound it out, and I wasn't noticing the accents so much. <laughs> so he was he was a he was an original person who went off with Buddha, and also he took over. He was like the lead guy when Buddha died. Well, he's also our ancestor. He's, he's, you know, when they do the Zen ancestors, it's uh, Buddha, then Mahakashyapa. Um, so. So, so he, we, he's the original Dharma heir? Uh, yes. Remember the story about the flower? You know, oh, yeah, that was Mahakashyapa. Mahakashyapa. He's so, the one who smiled. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we each want to read uh, the the koan? Um, and Ananda really had trouble getting enlightened. And he was like the more discursive, <laughs> rational one. So I love Ananda. Yeah. yeah. He was the he was the lineage holder in that he was the one who remembered. He remembered all that was said and he, was able to recite it. So um, I guess until the Buddha died, he was necessary for that. And then, and then he could get a little awake, you know. He's a good uh, parrot. Right, well, he also was the, he was the Buddha's attendant. So yeah. to my mind, you know, he was busy with all the other stuff. So who had time for enlightenment, you know? Top <laughs> <laughs> would carry water. That's what he, he was, he was just being what he was. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, I remember you saying that you and Lori at one point, uh, Kim, had talked about everybody reading the koan themselves or in, in some way. Oh, well, we did way. that last week. Yeah. Yeah. So does everybody, uh, would everybody like to just read it and then we'll go on. Um, and the last person to read it could read a woman's comment. Okay. Okay. So uh, let's start with, um, let's start with Donna. Okay, so just the koan. Just the koan. Okay. Um, Ananda asked Mahakashyapa, besides the golden robe, what else did the Buddha transmit to you? Mahakashyapa yelled, Ananda! Ananda replied, yes. Mahakashyapa said, take down the flagpole in front of the gate. <laughs> okay, and Nelda? Ananda asked Mahakashyapa, beside the golden robe, what else did the Buddha transmit to you? Mahakashyapa yelled, Ananda. Ananda replied, yes. Mahakashyapa said, take down the temple flagpole in front of the gate. 
them. So this must have occurred after the Buddha died. This, anyway, Ananda asked Mahakashapa. Let me try again. Mahakashapa. Besides the golden robe, what else did Buddha transmit to you? Mahakashapa yelled, Ananda, Ananda. An oh, Ananda. Ananda replied, yes. Mahakashapika said, take down the temple flagpole in the front gate. Okay, Stephanie, um, you can read it and then go on and do um, woman's comment. Okay, okay. Ananda asked Mahakashapa, besides the golden robe, what else did the Buddha transmit to you? Mahakashapa yelled, Ananda. Ananda replied, yes. Mahakashapa said, take down the temple flagpole in the front gate. Wu Men's comment, if you can utter a turning word here, then you will personally realize that the assembly on Vulture Peak has not yet dispersed. If this were not so, then why is it that since antiquity until now, the Pasyan Buddha still could not realize the sublime, even though he had long set his heart on it. The question is not as intimate as the answer. Whose eyes have strengthened from this truth? The elder calls, the younger responds. The family shame is fully exposed, a spring outside of yin and yang. Does anyone have anything they'd like to share? I would because this one blew me away. It really did. Do you do you realize the pun? Well, there there's a there's a koan about does the wind move or does the flag move? Oh yes, yes, Bl yes. Like blew me away. The flag I was blows moved. Away. Okay, <laughs> I, flags so, move. So I'm just gonna read what I wrote. So where I where I went to and I re, I'm trying to remember exactly what sentence it was because it was one sentence I, I'll go back and look but it it brought forth this what did your mother give or show you what did she teach you what did raising your son give or show you what did he teach you what does gardening give or show you? What does it teach you? And how do you hold all of that in a simple word or in the transfer of a mere possession? All that each experience and iconic possession holds can't be held in something as plain as words. All that inter interwoven connectedness, emotion, epiphanies can't be touched by simple descriptors including when I've thought, have I failed so you so badly, son, that I've taught you nothing? Or have you chosen so poorly that you've learned little and it's time for both of us to sorrow? Beautiful. Oh. <laughs> uh, you, you're a beautiful writer, Nelda. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well. That really, that really brought forth something in you. It did. Wow. And I feel, you know, a Buddha was actually the um, attendant for 500 Buddhas before him. 
which just is unimaginable to me. You know, we think, well, I've been doing this job a long time, <laughs> 500 <laughs> lifetimes. Um, so I kind of got it as the next job to do. And then I thought of these two koans about flags. One was the one, does the flag move or the wind move? And the other is stepping off a hundred foot pole, which I could kind of think of as a flag pole. So it's not an arbitrary next job to do like washing your bowl. But, but I, I'm sure we'll learn more about the particular significance of the flagpole. Yeah, um, I, um, I really, I was stumped. I kind of didn't know what to write, but then I was looking at, uh, uh, you know, the go on itself. And I thought if Ananda's, if Ananda's asking uh, what was transmitted, it can't be told. You know, so, um, you know, for Maha Kashapa to just then, you know, say, just go take down the flagpole, it's almost like he's saying, it's nothing I'm going to be able to tell you. You're, it's just going to be your own life experience or what, I don't know. You know, that's kind of where I was going. But I didn't understand the golden robe reference. And I didn't know if any of you did. The golden robe, what? The reference to a golden robe. Because well, they all they all wore golden robes. I mean, I don't know if, if at Buddha's time, but that's what I, the Burmese do. I assume that that was one of the. There, there's more to the story. Um, it okay. seems that uh, Mahakashyapa, before he came to the Buddha to seek refuge, was actually quite wealthy, and uh, when he approached Buddha, he had a beautifully woven, you know, wrap. The, the, the material was exquisite and he offered it to the Buddha. Um, and so the, he's always been associated, especially as the story in India, it's Mahakashapa offering the robe. By the time it got to China and beyond, it's the Buddha offering Mahakashapa a robe instead as the symbol of transmission. Um, so the story has kind of worked both ways. Um, uh, I Yes, that makes sense now. So, so he, he gave up what he had and then was given it back. Yes. yes. Uh, and while I think the traditional stories don't say it was a golden robe, it probably would have cost you know, much gold, it was so finely woven and soft and, you know, all the, all the good stuff, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, so now the question makes sense. Um, obviously he was given back the golden robe by the Buddha, but Ananda wants to know what was transmitted. I mean, apart from this cloth you got back, Right. And, and what, did you, what did you realize? <laughs> and it, well, it must be really frustrating to be Ananda and all these people around you getting enlightened and you knowing every word the Buddha said and not, you know, I think it's such a great lesson for us. It is. That knowing, oh. knowing all the words is not just makes you a parrot. Just makes you a parrot. So I yeah. I found the sentence that just um and it's 
the question is not as intimate as the answer. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I like that. You know, it's, it's as if um, the answer that Maha Kashapa gave him was really pointing toward, you know, just the, not you know away from concepts and back into you know the beingness you know it's almost as crass i was thinking it's almost as crass as if someone says what did your mother leave you when she died (laughs) and someone starts talking about her kindness her goodness and they goes no no i mean in the will (laughs) that's that's sort of what this three what what um what Ananda's question reminds me of. Yeah, what else did the Buddha give you? <laughs> it's so well, it's a crass question. Uh, but I mean, it's a very honest question because I mean, what is enlightenment? What is awakening? What is this that they're talking about um, but can't be spoken of, really? You know, you want to know. You want to know. That's what drives you, you know? And yet he said, what did he leave you besides the rope? One of the things I like so much about the koans is that the right answer is given, but the least obvious answer. You know, I mean, the obvious answer would be, well, he taught me the Dharma or something like that. You know. In fact, I asked Lori, I told her she couldn't escape our koan. And I asked her the koan and that's what she said that, uh, that it was the it was the dharma i didn't give her the answer that he gave i just read the first line what else besides um what was it besides what the golden robe robe. besides the golden robe and she said the dharma yeah but the dharma uh to me it's like all the teachings all the teachings are pointing they're pointing they're not the truth itself. They're pointing to the truth. So, you know, if you ask somebody outright, you know, what is true nature? What is the Dharma? Um, They can use all kinds of words, but it's not going to help you. It's not going to help you. It's, it's what it elicits in you. And then the experience that may be evoked, you know, so uh, at least that, you know, that's, you know, what I, what I was thinking. And I'll take what you said, Gail, and just scoot it sideways just a little bit that my thought about the flagpole in front of the temple gate is that um, it's um, flagpoles kind of show sovereignty, you know, in a way we don't, they don't say anything about a flag on this flagpole, but the fact that, um, Ananda is asking Maha Kashapa, what was the teaching? What it's like this barrier almost into the temple of you know Buddha nature, like you say, this indescribable, um, can't be limited um, teaching. You know, it is a gateless gate. Uh, but oh, you know, here's this flagpole about what did you learn? What did you learn? <laughs> so. Um, oh. I really like that, Donna, you know, um, (laughs) yeah, you can't plant your flag anywhere. (laughs) Right, 
So You're true. telling him to take it down. Take down that and flagpole. It, I suspect it would be taken down every night. <laughs> the flagpole? To, to protect it. No, no, the flag. Oh, yeah. Lowered every night. And, and so that would be like a expression of, of, um, of devotion, of respect. So was Mahakashapa saying, take down the flagpole, you've learned, I've taught you nothing. I, I'm, there's no point in having this symbol of Buddha sovereignty here. When, oh, I don't think so. What do, okay, well, will, will we find out? But find out. Yeah, let's. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, Don, uh, uh, Nelda, maybe I was. Um, you're giving us a completely different meaning than I was, and I think you're right. That it's not take down the flag; it's take down the flagpole. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I was reading uh, like lower the flag. I got it from Donna. <laughs> I was. Listening to Donna talking about oh, the symbol of sovereignty, and he's like, "You've learned nothing. Let's just take down this flagpole." Right. It, you, you can't get through that gateless gate. You know, Dharma gates are boundless, but they don't have flagpoles. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't fly your flag. You know. Can't fly your flag. I got right. it. Let me give it to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Did we want to? Uh, are we supposed to sit again before we read, uh, or now no. we go right into reading? Yes. Okay. Well, let's let's do that, and we'll go. Um, you know, alphabetical, starting with right. Donna. I shall begin. <laughs> um, Gu Gu's comment: The Chan tradition claims to be a tradition that passes on through successive generations of teachers, a special transmission of teaching separate from the written scriptures. This lineage of teachers can be traced all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha in India, more than 2,500 years ago. This case is about this Dharma transmission, but it does not exclude anyone. It includes you. This case directly points to what it is that has been transmitted in other words, to the essence that is being passed on through generations of practitioners within this lineage. I invite you to investigate this directly, personally. Maha Kashyapa was one of Sakyamuni Buddha's 10 closest disciples. He had a great practice, great determination, and great wisdom. He was also known as the most aesthetic practitioner. It was he who succeeded Sakyamuni as the leader of the Buddhist order after the Buddha's passing. Ananda, on the other hand, was young and handsome and had a fabulous memory. After the Buddha reached great enlightenment, he went back to his father's palace and expounded teachings to his family and everyone there. When he left, he brought with him many converts, people who, upon hearing his teachings, decided to join the Sangha. This included Buddha's own six-year-old son, who then became the youngest monk, and Ananda, the Buddha's younger cousin. Is that the same Ananda? Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I don't understand. Ananda went and got these converts? No, Buddha, after his enlightenment, this is what I'm understanding, uh, went back to his home. Oh, I was, got it. 
Yeah. I see it now. I was misreading, mishearing what you were saying. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, Kim? What we have here is basically a scene taking place after the Buddha has passed away. Ananda knew that everyone would be under the leadership of Maha Kashapa. Out of curiosity, he asked Maha Kashapa, what else did the Buddha transmit to you aside from robe and bow? In Chan, the robe and bow added on to transmission stories by people much later than the Buddha's time to embellish the special status of Chan are objects of entrustment of the awakening. <coughs> In later times, people came up with paper certificates to symbolize the transmission of mind. Is it me? Yeah. Nothing is really transmitted in Dharma transmission. It is just an acknowledgement, but people tend to mystify it or make a big deal out of it. It is an acknowledgement that recognizes the debt of gratitude a student has to the teacher and the teacher's entrustment to the student to ensure that the teachings continues. What is important is gratitude and responsibility. Dharma transmission is not to be vied for. It's not an object of attachment. It does not legitimize one's awakening. It is an expression of gratitude, especially in this ephemeral world. So I can't help but think about uh, Peg talking about um, she will eventually transmit, you know, give Dharma transmission to, to Flint. Is that right? I've heard her say that, yes. Yeah, and, and it, that's pretty powerful in, in reading that sentence and in thinking about that. Yeah, I think Flint would have had it a long time ago, except for certain yeah. events that happened at Austin Zen Center. It's so, quite yeah. a story, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Even the historical Buddha, Sakyamuni, is not excluded from impermanence. He is said to have taught for 40 years and was 80 years old when he passed away. Ananda acted as his attendant monk for most of this period. Ananda presented a big contrast to Mahakashapa, who was known in the community as the greatest ascetic and the most diligent practitioner. So I'm confused. Um, I thought once the Buddha became awakened, he he talked about that being an ascetic wasn't the way to enlightenment. Is that true? That's true. Well, but I, yet Mahakashapa was known as as the greatest ascetic within the within within the Buddha's tradition. I mean, not yeah. to the point of starvation and you know the the really. Um, grueling kind of asceticism uh, that the Buddha had practiced before, but um, you know, just just even thinking about you know Buddhist practitioners we have known, some of them are very, um, you know, they they take those teachings totally to heart and lead a very um, dedicated and, and often to you know our way of thinking, you know, uh, pretty darn strict and kind of hard, you know, but it's not, it's, it's ascetic, ascetic, but not 
not the extreme asceticism. Okay, okay. On the other hand, Ananda was characterized as having a great memory. As the attendant to the Buddha, Ananda heard just about all the teachings that the master gave and was amazingly able to reproduce them all because of his excellent memory. However, he seldom applied the teaching to himself. When the Buddha passed away, Ananda was still unenlightened, unlike all the other arhats or liberated practitioners in the order. Um, in the mendicant tra tradition of the Buddha's time, he and all of his disciples had traveled to different regions teaching along the way. The Buddha specifically requested his disciples, especially those who had reached liberation, to go in the direction opposite to his and spread the teaching. So once he was liberated, Mahakashapa, along with other arhats, left the Sangha to spread the teaching. The story goes that Mahakashapa was not around when the Buddha passed away. As was the custom, the Buddha's body was prepared for cremation, but on that day, even though his disciples tried several times to light the funeral pyre, as soon as it was lit, the fire would immediately go out. This went on until Mahakashapa finally arrived on the scene. In his presence, the fire lit up by itself. What a story. Uh, Mahakashapa was meant to be the one to conduct the Buddha's funeral as well as to oversee the order. After the Buddha's death, a few monks com commented, finally, the old guy's dead. Now we can do what we want. Having overheard this, Mahakashapa called a council so that all the Buddha's major teachings would be recited, collected, and passed on. Ananda, with his great memory, had to be there. But Mahakashapa wouldn't allow it because he was not enlightened. This turned out to be a blessing because for all of his life, even after he became a monk, Ananda had relied on his cousin, the Buddha. He was able to repeat all of his teachings verbatim, but had never been a serious practitioner, as he always felt that the Buddha would save him. Um, I'm having trouble with getting the page. My, my page is not turning right. Okay. Do you want us to skip you for the moment? Uh, sure. Here. Okay. You can skip me. Okay. Uh, Nelda. Mahakashyapa said to Ananda, the council meeting will be held in a few days. If you are not an arhat by that time, you will be excluded. Ananda was very saddened by these words. He felt rejected. At the same time, it spurred him on to be diligent. The old master he had relied on all of his life had passed away. He no longer had anyone to teach him, to rely on. He felt like an abandoned orphan. To make it worse, his sangha leader, Mahakashyapa, his own older Dharma brother rejected him, refusing him participation in the council because he was not liberated. Out of great desperation, relying on himself, he became an arhat. 
The written records of Buddhist history tell us that all who ever got awakened did so either while walking, lying down, sitting, or standing. Ananda was the only person to reach awakening not in any of these positions. He did it while falling down. He became liberated in midair as he collapsed from physical and mental fatigue from practicing so hard. He practiced continual sitting meditation, but that did not work. Then he tried walking meditation until he was physically exhausted and delirious. With that sense of earnestness and the pressure of the limited time he had to become awakened, he forgot where he was. However, on the evening of the day before the council meeting, he practiced so hard that he finally collapsed. In the, in the sensation of the present moment, as he was falling, self-grasping suddenly dropped from his mind. He became fully awakened. You may have experienced leaning forward as you're dozing off during sitting, unless really fatigued, suddenly jerking back to wake yourself up. Ananda woke himself up from dozing off, and at the very moment he was falling down with all four limbs on the ground, he achieved arhathood, great awakening. The next morning he went straight to the Council of Arhats, to which he had not been invited. All the Arhats wondered what he was doing there, since they knew he was not enlightened, all except Mahakashapa, who clearly saw Ananda's countenance. The old monk joined his palms. He knew immediately that there was now something different about Ananda, that he was now awakened. Mahakashapa invited Ananda to join the council and recite from memory all the Buddha's scriptures. You may wonder about that change in Ananda that Mahakashapa perceived. It is not necessarily something physical. If it were physical, you'd probably want to learn how to imitate Ananda, to walk like him and be recognized as a master. The present case happened after Ananda was enlightened. Yet Ananda still asks Mahakashapa what else the Buddha passed down to him. The answer from Mahakashapa is quite interesting. Ananda, yes, take down the flagpole. What a wonderful response a call, a response. Is there anything else needed? What need is there for anything to be transmitted? Back then, the flagpole had some specific social function. In the Buddhist tradition, just before a Dharma discourse was about to happen, a signpost was displayed. During the Buddha's time, it was a pole announcing that the master, namely the Buddha, or one of his high disciples, was about to give a talk. Later in Chan monasteries, the signpost became the ring of a bell, of the bell, like the situation in case 16. So it's not a uh, flagpole as we know it, but it's more of a sign that, that, uh, of an event. An announcement. So, yeah. <laughs> the question in, in the present case could be compared to one of my students asking me before I give a talk or a teaching, Guo Gu, you received the seal of approval from Master Shen Yen. Tell me, what did he transmit to you? And I'd call out my student's name and ask him to turn off the mic and then just leave. 
Could it be that I had a tiring day and didn't feel like teaching? Or simply the teaching was over, it was already given. Present case is also similar to the time the Buddha transmitted the Dharma to Mahakashyapa. According to one particular scripture, Sakyamuni Buddha supposedly did this on Vulture Peak. As was described in case six, he ascended the seat, looked at everyone, picked a flower from the ground and held it up. No one understood what the Buddha was doing. His disciples may have thought, is the master getting old? Is he now appreciating flowers? Only Mahakashyapa understood and smiled. The Buddha was not as crude as Mahakashyapa who yelled out Ananda's name or those Chan masters who slammed the door on seekers or whacked them to jolt them into awakening. No, the Buddha was much gentler. He just held up a lovely flower. When the Buddha saw Mahakashyapa smile, he immediately said, I have the treasury of the true Dharma eye, the wondrous mind of Nirvana, the true form of no form, the subtle and wondrous gate to the Dharma, the special transmission outside of scriptural teaching not established on words and language. I now entrust it to Mahakashyapa. Everyone in the assembly was dumbfounded, all asking among themselves, what has just happened? Now I ask you, what did the Buddha transmit? Mahakashapa calls and Ananda responds. What does that mean? What is this calling? What is this response? If you have embarked on Chan practice, you will know that this practice is about intimacy, but not intimacy of the worldly kind. Practice is about coming to know something so close, so near. It is knowing personally who you are, even as you sit in meditation, counting your breaths or aware of the breath in and out, in and out. It is not about being pushed and pulled by wandering thoughts or discursive thinking or drowsiness, but about maintaining the clarity of in the moment awake. In this process, you become intimate with the immediacy of the present, dropping off the clouds of deluded discursive thinking. We drop the facade, the masks, the games we play, and bathe in the stream of experiencing without self. What else do we need? Besides the golden robe, what else did Buddha transmit to you? What could Mahakashapa say to such an unnecessary question? Nanda is like a person who is already drinking water and then asks, is there more to this water than water? Wumen urges us to investigate the reality of who we are, what this is right here and right now. Oh, I get what was said in a few paragraphs back. Maybe you guys all got it, but that uh, the teaching, because he made allusion to the teaching was over. Yeah. He, the, that's why he said, take down the, the signpost. You, you all got that and I didn't, okay. If you can utter a turning word here, then you will personally realize that the assembly on Vulture Peak has not yet dispersed. If this were not so, then why is it that 
since antiquity until now, Vipassian, Vipassian Buddha still could not realize the sublime, even though he had long set his heart on it. Um, oh, Don, I have a question for Donna. Um, was it on Vulture Peak that he held up the flower? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Vipassian is a Buddha of antiquity, the first of the seven Buddhas mentioned in early scriptures. At one time, the teacher of both Sakyamuni and Maitreya. What this sentence means is that if we can't realize the truth of Mahakashyapa's call to Ananda, or that there is nothing more to this water than the water we're drinking each and every moment, then uh, Vipassian Buddha has himself never attained the truth. And Sakyamuni and Maitreya have never gotten the truth either. Uh, I think I'm next. There is no truth other than this. Can you offer a turning word? A turning word is a word or phrase that turns delusion to awakening, that demonstrates awakening. Say something, say something to demonstrate your personal understanding. If you can do that, you can turn this ludicrous case around, turning words. And it could be as if the Buddha was still giving his teaching on Vulture Peak, that he is still holding that flower and that you are the one smiling. The Buddha Dharma is widely available to you in this moment within you. Find it. Don't you see that Vipassian Buddha has already reached awakening? So have Sakyamuni and Maitreya. In fact, so have you. The Dharma has already been transmitted. If you can't shoulder the responsibility of this transmission, then take up woman's cue. The question is not as intimate as the answer. Whose eyes have strengthened from this truth? The elders call, the younger responds. The family shame is fully exposed. A spring outside of yin and yang. The whole point of Buddhist or Chan practice is intimacy. Not intimacy with someone else, not intimacy with some text not with more concepts or ideas, but intimacy with the truth that you are. Just free yourself from clutter, delusion, and self-referentiality. The answer is already here. The treasury of the true Dharma eye and the wondrous mind of Nirvana are already here. That's why the question is not as intimate as the answer. If you can realize this, then your wisdom eye will blaze with strength and power. This reminds me of the, so often in the Christian tradition, people try to get across the idea that the kingdom of God is not something that's up there or that happens when you die. The kingdom of God is here right now. Right upon the earth, but men do not see it, right? Right. <laughs> right. I saying the elder calls, the younger responds, the family's shame is exposed. 
woman is actually praising the interaction between Mahakashapa and Ananda. <clears throat> Recently, when I picked up a cup of water, I saw how the, how the water reflected the light of the room in a fragmented way through tiny ripples. The light through the water and the water and the light were not different. Many people get caught up with words and concepts, which is like the ripples of the water in my cup. When you're caught up with ripples, you cannot reflect too well. Everything becomes fragmented. Yet the natural function of water is to reflect, just like the role of the teacher is to call the student, to call forth the student's Buddha nature. The role of the student is to answer, to respond without self-reference. This is to bring to life your awakening. This is the kind of springtime that is beyond the workings of yin and yang. Yin and yang in Chinese ancient philosophy is that which complements and gives rise to everything, including the changing of seasons in the world of rising and perishing, coming and going. But here, spring <clears throat> is beyond this world of impermanence, beyond samsara. This is not to say that women suggest that there is some kind of permanent thing out there. No, the spring outside of yin and yang is beyond existence or non-existence, rise, arising and perishing, coming and going. To put it bluntly, it is nirvana. But why use such a concept? Better to just cast away what it is not. This is completely unfathomable if you use the mind of arising and perishing to think about it. How do you live in the changing seasons of yin and yang and realize that which is beyond it? How do you dispel the clouds of delusion so you can actually see the moon? Recall what I said about intimacy. As you are reading these words, feeling the presence and the weight of your body, be here and share this intimacy with all of your being. Say something. The next time you make a decision, when you generate vexations causing you trouble, or when you give other people trouble with your jealousy, anger, and so forth, come back and say, the treasury of the true Dharma eye, the wondrous mind of Nirvana, is already transmitted, already here. Then take full responsibility. Why have you chosen to express anger or vexations, spreading them to others around you, especially those whom you love? Why did you choose to give up your treasury of the true Dharma eye and wondrous mind of Nirvana for vexation? Let it go. Stop the game. There's nothing to gain outside this moment free from self. Practice is not about getting a glimpse of the moon. There is no moon. There, nor is there some kind of permanent spring season. Practice is not about producing blissful states or religious experiences or awakening. Practice is only about not getting caught up with changing season and dark hovering clouds. When these are suddenly not there, you will realize that the spring outside of yin and yang or the moon itself has vanished. And together with that, vexations are go also gone.
so I have a funny story, I think. The, um, my 10-year-old grandson is in Philadelphia and today he decided he would make a snowball and roll it down all around the block as far as he could. And it got so heavy, he couldn't move it anymore. So as I was sitting, I started to imagine that there was this kid behind him who was following him and doing the same thing. But he was able to go twice as far because Dash, that's my grandson, already picked up most of the snow. So the kid behind him could go twice as far because he didn't have as much snow to pick up. So anyway, I will um, present that to him and see what he thinks, who won. I'm curious why that came to mind right after this koan, are they connected? Were you connecting it to, well, no, I guess I'll just ask the question and wait for you to. Well, it came as a text message when we were sitting. Oh, okay. And so it was related in that sense. But also this, um, you know, these are paths these people are all on and trying very hard to do. Like, like Dash and wondering what will happen and stuff like that if you do this. And also like a 10 year old kid, like not believing, you know, believing he could do every, everything. This is a pretty privileged kid who goes to a great school and does, can do a thousand things and stuff. And I just think it's a beautiful story. The sidewalk's so interesting because it goes back and forth between concrete and brick. You know, it's an old part of Philadelphia. So there'd be impressions of the bricks in the snow too. Oh, as how it beautiful. Was, it was yeah. Rolling along. So what do we think of all this? I, I really um, relate to Ananda um, because <laughs> Here he was, all those years, so devoted to the Buddha and um, uh, memorizing all of the teachings, and but really not applying any of them or actually really delving into his own beingness, the way the teachings are kind of keep pointing you back to yourself. And then he's told he can't participate in this council and how devastating that must have felt to him. Um, you know, and then it kind of, you know, uh, reminded me of what if it is like practice, what is it Dogen says, like your hair's on fire. Mm. <laughs> I guess it was that hair on fire moment for him. And um, I didn't, I'd never heard that story about Ananda, you know, afterwards. I, I knew he got enlightened after the Buddha passed, but I didn't know this particular story about that. Me either. Yeah. So, um, I, I really liked hearing it. And we all know people. I, my mother was like that, where she was really well read and and trained in psychology and and uh, unable to uh, really uh, you know deal with her own life and her own feelings. Oh, Kim, you know you've just described my mother exactly. <laughs> Maybe we're sister and brother. <laughs> Right, you had you did have a sister named Gail after all. But. I did, yes. Spelled the same way you 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 did you spell yours. 
Yeah, but you're right about that. I mean, we can get all the concepts and still be totally unable to help ourselves. You know, and that's, you know, what this is kind of pointing to. It's sort of, it goes beyond concepts. There has to be some willingness, I think, um, to get out of the head and just, you know, move into something deeper, I, you know, and I don't even know how anybody does that. You know, I, I know how I try to do it, but, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to describe. And so think how frustrating it must have been to the other monks when Maha, 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 Maha um, was able to, um, you know, got the transmission, got the award, and they they thought it was all in the in the Dharma. I'm like your grandson. Sometimes my practice is like gathering all the snow I can sitting more and more and more, doing more and more studies, listening to you amazing practitioners who practice so many years and hoping that something sinks in. And I keep gathering, gathering snow. And then I think, oh, I've got it. And the it is this big snowball I can't pick up. And it's exhausting, right? And so to know that I can just let it down, <laughs> just leave it right where it is and sit in the snow and just be there, you know, and it's funny. I hear that over and over in all of the teachings, just be, be with, with this. But it doesn't take but a nanosecond to me, for me to go right back to collecting snow. Yeah, that's beautiful, uh, Nelda. You, you brought Kim's story right into our here. <laughs> you know, but this isn't the first, this isn't the first story I've heard, like Ananda became awakened in mid-fall, you know what I mean, just exhausted himself in mid-fall, he wakes up, and then I heard another one, uh, um, you know, Master, who had been, got disgusted with the fact that he couldn't get enlightened as a monk, and he left the monastery and he went into the town, and I don't know who, who this one was, um, maybe somebody else knows, and he got totally drunk, you know, at the local bar, and was just so depressed, and then came back that morning, still drunk with an immense hangover, and was looking, you know, at the top of a hill down at the monastery, and then suddenly just woke up. He, but he'd totally given up. I mean, totally given up, you know? And then I heard of another one, who became awakened in mid-cough, very depressed. Have <laughs> you heard that one? Somebody who had like a, like the like a really bad cough or the flu or something, got so sick with depression about not being enlightened and was coughing. And in mid-cough, it was kind of disgusting. You know, he suddenly so became. So is like, the key here that we need to get depressed? I hope not. <laughs> but. You, you hear that story. Um, and I yeah. think it's when people finally let go of um, collecting the snow or rolling the snowball, you know, it's, they just, you know, uh, get frustrated with trying to attain something um, and just let go. It's such a different um, way of viewing what they're calling depression or letting go because when I think of it, it's, you know, you're all wrapped up in yourself. It's all about poor me, poor me, poor me. 
it's all about self. But the way they're describing it, it's all about non-self, no self. You know, that complete giving up of any attachment to, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Just completely letting it go. Mm-hmm. Much more that's, freeing. That's what uh, sometimes depression does do, though. It, it, it puts you into a place of not caring at all. And, you know, um, you know at least I, I've experienced, and I think of like Eckhart Tolle, you know, he, he woke up in the midst of a very, very deep depression. Um, so I, I really don't know what this has to do with anything, but um, there's some component of, um, of letting go, uh, I think, that sometimes happens with people and uh, not, quite, not quite sure how that works. But it seems a different letting go with depression than the letting go that we're talking about. Yeah, it's true. His depression, his, his transformative statement to himself was, I can't stand myself. And but then it was, who is this I who is aware of a self I can't stand? And that's that one statement just changed his life where he started just but you hear that many times that we almost and you hear it in other traditions i keep bringing up other traditions but in the christian tradition you know you can't really look up to the sky meaning god until you fall to your knees and it's almost in that in that crashing and that falling that things drop away and then you're freed of of that eye yeah, and I don't think um, I don't think it, that I do it. You know what I mean? This, yes. You know what I mean? Like we we keep thinking there's something we can do to make it happen, mm-hmm. and that last step is not that isn't what's experienced. It happens. Mm-hmm. It feels like spontaneously, out of the blue. Yeah. And uh, and I don't. It's that's a mystery to me. Um, it is, but I think it's also, for me anyway, very much of a relief. It's like a burden that I don't have to carry because I can't do anything. Don't you love getting to the point sometimes as painful as it can be, where you just no. can't do it anymore or <laughs> take it anymore, and you, and all of a sudden this whatever you've been carrying, you just, you just can't do it. Nelda, I would would rather not go through the pain. (laughs) Me too, but sometimes, you know, it takes the fire to be refined. I agree. I guess guess it's just that there's a part of me that knows that without going through it, Biden said it in his speech, to heal, we've got to feel. Mm. And I remember that constantly about there's no transformation without going through the fire. That leads to refinement. It's like if you'll just, yeah. Anyway. Not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. Well, the thing that I've discovered, you know, and I think you all kind of know the same thing, is I actually can't avoid anything. Do you know? It's... You know, I can put things off. I can push them to the side. 
but eventually it's going to come up. Whatever needs to happen is going to happen. If my intention and my um, aspiration is true, I trust that whatever needs to happen is going to happen. And in my experience, it does. Even the stuff I don't think I want to feel, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what I love about Buddhism. Avoiding is a big, uh, people spend a lot of uh, time and money avoiding, don't they? Yes. Time, especially. Yeah. And, and actually, when I talked to a therapist friend of mine who said, you know, now that there's different responses to life, there's fight, flight, freeze, and there's one other that's so rare in terms of percentage. She says the vast majority of people, over 90%, take a flight response and avoidance. You know, it's really a lot smarter to get away from the run from the tiger than to stand there, right? I mean, it's just, it really, if you think in terms of a healthy approach, so it makes sense that we're avoiding. She goes, but you, Nelda, you're in that seven, six to seven percent who's fight. You won't, you will fight even if you're the little girl with the wooden sword fighting the fiery dragon. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> She's like, no, no, you don't have to go through that many fires head on. And so I think I don't, my point in all of that is to say, I think it's well adaptive to not avoid, but, but not to face as many fires as are present only the necessary ones. Mm. That's and funny. You know, you know what those are. You know what those are because they keep coming up again and again and again. That's, that's how I know. You know, it's maybe in slightly different forms, but yeah. It just Yesterday. Like there's a lot of delusion that has to be kind of seen through. Mm. You know? You have to see through things. That's the only thing I can do is keep investigating what I think is true, especially if it's causing me pain. And um, um, see if there's maybe another way to look at things. And that's, that's basically the only choice I have, uh, I feel. You know, Gail, and I mentioned this only like to, to, to bring it to experiential words. I know for most of my life, one of my recurring painful things was that I thought I had to save everyone and everything. I was the designated little God. If I weren't in the world, nobody would have an amazing life. It was all up to me, that perfect little caretaker to fix everyone and everything. And in the process, I lost me so many times and exhausted me and felt resentful and self-pity and anger. And um, it, it still comes up. I remember recently, not long ago, when I had a little um, teaching time with Robin, and I said, remind me of the teachings. She said, in Buddhism, self-care comes first. First. You can't go anywhere without self-care. And I thought, ah, oh, oh, there I am again. Perfect little codependent caretaker. <laughs> yeah, she's always she, she's always talking to me about that too. Yeah, because it 
if you take care of yourself and you're not following this construct, this role of saving the world, because I'm the little G, you know, in God, um, then all these resentments and frustrations and anguish don't build up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely can uh, relate with everything that you're saying. Um, the reason I was have been codependent, I think, also is because my I felt my own sense of safety was connected to everyone else being okay. You know, not trusting that I would be safe without, you know, all this saving and caretaking and, you know. It's sort of like you're the only one who can do it because you don't trust that anybody else will do it, you know. Um, so, you know, that's these are conditions, you know, uh, what do they call it? The conditioning that you come in with. Um, so, yeah. So how nice that we get to practice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I really look forward to this. Monday night. I do too. I do. Too. I appreciate you all being so committed to it. Thank you. Yeah, there's so much to this. Thank you. Yeah, there's not that many of us, uh, but it kind of um, it makes it easier actually to have a discussion. It does. It does. Yeah. And according to my book, my little what's it called kindle book we are 50 percent. it's it prints the percentage at the bottom yeah 50 percent through the book <laughs> i just noticed that in my book i'm looking i was just holding it up and going oh my gosh we're 50 percent through <laughs> how many how many of these are there altogether? there's 45 okay yeah. so um or 48 no. there's 48 it's interesting to me that when I first read one of these, and also with Wu Men's comment, I'll be totally at sea. I mean, totally at sea. But once we get the context and everybody begins to share what was evoked, then it almost feels like, I don't know, you know, like, like um, something's, you're, you're growing in some way. Right. <laughs> in some odd way. Right. Or that a part of you that already knew just woke up. <laughs> because you couldn't get it if that part wasn't already there. It just woke up. Yeah. Yeah. So is that about it for tonight, you guys? I think so. We pretty much uh, finished with that one. Well, you're so. our leader. <laughs> Yes, I'm planting my flagpole. <laughs> I've got the Dharma and I'm giving it to you. <laughs> we have nothing more to say. <laughs> nothing more to say. <laughs> so go and, I don't know, bake cookies or fall down. <laughs> go and eat or fall down. Or right. gather snow. No, don't gather snow. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, everyone. Oh, have a good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you. See you next week. Take care. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>